0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace calling from The Washington Post. Hi,
1: Jeff. This Winfrey. Oprah.
0: Hi there. How are you? Um, it's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 11th. Today, the fight over the FBI investigation into the Trump campaign. The people going into debt to reach the United States, and women in science fiction.
2: Chairman Graham, Senator Feinstein, members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to testify today. The report that my office...
3: The Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz is testifying. He's the man who leads this internal watchdog office that assessed the FBI's uh, Russia investigation. His office does assessments of high-profile things and potential misconduct.
2: The report that my office released this week is the product of a comprehensive and exhaustive review... Conducted over the past
3: night. 19- His office, and they're like the Justice Department's internal watchdog, performed an assessment of the FBI's investigation in 2016 into President Trump's campaign and ties with Russia, an assessment to determine whether it was opened properly, whether some steps the FBI took along the way were okay, whether the use of informants were okay. So he's describing to lawmakers what he found. I'm Matt Zapatowski. I'm a national security reporter here at the Washington Post.
2: We determined that the decision to open Crossfire Hurricane was made by the then FBI Counterintelligence Division's Assistant Director, Bill Priestap, and that his decision reflected a consensus reached after multiple days of discussions and meetings among senior FBI officials.
0: And this hearing is important because it's kind of the culmination of this fight that's been happening for several weeks where you have the inspector general and the attorney general, William Barr, kind of completely at odds over the FBI's role in starting the investigation into the Trump campaign all the way back in the summer of 2016.
3: Yeah, to me, it's really the culmination of months of fighting between Republicans and Democrats over whether the FBI investigation had the proper cause to open and what the FBI did was right. And that has really kind of metastasized here in the last week as the attorney general, knowing what the inspector general found, has come out. And disputed his findings in these very unusual ways, suggesting that he doesn't believe that the FBI had good cause to open the investigation.
2: I don't know what the motivations were, and I'm not I'm not saying they were improper motivations, but I, I think it's premature to to you know rule definitively there wasn't.
3: Even though the internal watchdog found that they had adequate predicate to open the investigation, you have the attorney general highlighting a lot of serious failures, sort of even going beyond what the inspector general found. So that's why this hearing is so momentous. We're hearing the inspector general. We've got his report, but we're hearing him now describe for the first time his side of, of things and, and what he found and um, you know, in the context of the attorney general already coming out and, and having disputed some of that.
0: And so far today, what are the kind of top line things of what he said and how he feels ultimately about? the genesis of the of the investigation into the Trump campaign.
3: Today he's largely repeated what he said in his report, which was released just two days ago. And the top line conclusions are these one, that the FBI had adequate cause to open the Russia investigation. It's a low standard that they have to meet to do that, but in Horowitz's view, they had adequate cause. Two, they followed their policies and procedures when running confidential informants up against the Trump campaign. But the he feels those procedures need to be tightened a little little bit because the FBI can do this kind of on its own without Justice Department buy-in. But three, that there were very significant problems in the applications the FBI made to this secret court to monitor the former Trump campaign advisor, Carter Page.
2: Our review identified significant concerns with how certain aspects of the investigation were conducted and supervised, particularly the FBI's failure to adhere to its own standards of accuracy and completeness. When filing applications for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act authority, known as FISA.
3: That they omitted key information, that even as they found exculpatory information, they kind of kept that away from the court. In one instance, there was a doctored document that was used as a part of this process. So number three is there were significant problems once the investigation is open or after the investigation is open and as it proceeds. And they're applying to this secretive court to monitor a former Trump campaigner.
0: So, this watchdog, what he's saying is basically that he feels relatively positively about the FBI's decision making and starting this investigation, but he has some big caveats of things that he is concerned about in 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 the execution of the of the investigation but but generally, it's a pretty favorable attitude toward the FBI, which is in pretty stark contrast to some of the things that the attorney general William Barr had said over the past few days.
3: Yeah, I would say it's a mixed attitude. At the start he says it's pretty much fine, but the standard is low. But as it progresses he finds more serious problems. But the reason that this is so controversial is because the attorney general, the president, the president's allies has hyped expectations of this report to, you know, to a 15 essentially. They have alleged the whole thing was a witch hunt. The FBI never should have been able to do it in the first place, that they only did it because top-level FBI officials hated President Trump. And on those scores, which again, that expectation level is super high, but on those scores, Horowitz doesn't find any evidence really to support those sort of most sinister allegations. He does find problems, but because the public's expectation is so great, it's kind of a disappointment to President Trump, Bill Barr, and sort of the most conservative people who have been out there talking about this.
0: But those kinds of criticisms of the FBI and of this investigation, it's pretty remarkable that the attorney general is saying this about the chief law enforcement agency of the country.
3: Absolutely. So I think remarkable is the right word there. The inspector general uh, investigates various things all the time, and he often finds malfeasance. And typically what happens is he'll put together a report, he'll give it to the Justice Department, the FBI, whatever, and the leaders of those institutions push back. They say, well, the the malfeasance isn't as bad as you're saying it is. Well, did you consider this? Well, maybe you need this context. Because they're essentially sticking up for their people, right? But in this instance, you have the inspector general clearing the FBI of some of the most allegations, and the attorney general, the person who you might think would step in to defend them, saying, no, 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 it's worse than you're giving us credit for. And actually, the current inspector general, Michael Horowitz, was asked about this today um, by Senator Leahy.
2: How many IG reports under your name involved the Justice Department arguing, in fact, committed more misconduct than your investigation uncovered? Um, I don't recall that happening before. I, I, I tell you right now, none.
3: None. Barr is also attacking very, very forcefully. I mean, some of the language he used yesterday in media interviews was very, very forceful attacks
2: against the FBI. Some of the uh, stuff that Horowitz has uncovered, which to me is inexplicable. Such inexplicable. Is. Well, what I said is their case collapsed after the election, and they never told the court, and they kept on getting renewals on these applications. Uh, There was documents falsified in order to get these renewals. Uh, There was all kinds of uh, withholding of information from the court. And uh, the question really is, what was the agenda after the election that kept them pressing ahead after their case collapsed? This is the president of the
3: United States. His defenders would say, look, he thinks there were serious problems, and they would say accurately that Horowitz did find some serious problems with the FBI's behavior, and they would also say he's focused on this case, don't interpret his frustration more broadly like at the current department. But current department officials that I talk to are alarmed by this. You know, this is not good for morale, they say, and it undermines faith broadly in law enforcement, and that hurts their ability to make cases. You know, the FBI FBI agents have to go and testify in criminal trials all across the country, and they need juries to believe them. And if you have their boss, the attorney general, out there publicly attacking that institution, you know, they worry that that might get in jurors' minds, that there will just be a lessening of faith in the FBI.
0: And I think that it's also worth pointing out that the FBI over many years has cultivated a reputation for being somewhat apolitical, that there is an idea that the FBI operates independently regardless of whether there's a Democrat or a Republican as president, even even though the FBI is technically part of the executive office. And that if you have this very political fight about the FBI, where you have the inspector general of the Justice Department really butting heads with the attorney general, I feel like it it there is a risk that it kind of undercuts the case that this really is an apolitical independent institution.
3: Yeah I think comments like this, comments like Barr's, comments like Trump's risk people viewing law enforcement in a political lens and law enforcement hates that i've even seen polls, though none sort of post bars comments, but where uh, support among Republicans uh, for the FBI had actually eroded kind of in the Trump era, which is very unusual. Republicans kind of have a reputation of being very pro law enforcement people, but Republicans seem to be losing faith in the FBI, and you could you know sort of see well, President Trump is attacking the FBI, Republicans are losing faith it's you know even just the fact that we're sort of doing polling to see. What various political parties think about law enforcement, I'm sure, doesn't sit well with them. Now, recently, that support has sort of come back, and we'll see where it ends up after this inspector general report, after Barr's comment. There's an ongoing investigation, too, that Barr has commissioned very similar to the inspector general, this U.S. attorney in Connecticut called John Durham. So this isn't over. Like, the investigators have been investigated, and now they're being investigated again.
0: Matt Zapatosky is a national security reporter for the Post.
4: One of the most confusing things to me when I started reporting on this. Is when you ask Guatemalans how much it costs to migrate, they'll tell you, you no, know, it's 5,000, 6,000, 10,000, 12,000 dollars for an individual or for a small family to migrate. Those are huge numbers for anyone, but especially in rural Guatemala, I mean, those are impossible sums.
0: More and more Guatemalans are trying to get to America. Over the last nine months, at least 250,000 people from Guatemala reached the U.S. border. And they include many of the country's poorest people, who are somehow able to scrape together huge amounts of money to pay for the journey.
4: And so I've always wondered, how are people paying this money? My name is Kevin Seif. I'm the Mexico bureau chief for The Post. The people who are migrating from Guatemala are not middle-class Guatemalans, by and large. They're poor, rural, often subsistence farmers from the highlands of Guatemala. So how are they coming up with $10,000 to pay for the journey? The answer, at least in many cases, is that there are these quite sophisticated systems of financing, of, of borrowing, of loaning money to people who are looking to migrate to the US. And often, the place that money comes from financial institutions in Guatemala that either were created by the U.S. government or have received huge amounts of support from the U.S. government and the World Bank over the last 20 or 30 years.
0: So tell me more about these financial institutions and how did it end up with this system where microfinancing is getting people to leave and try to come to the U.S.?
4: So to answer that question, we have to start back in sort of the late 70s or 80s during the, the early years of microfinance. You know, this is a time when institutions like the World Bank, like USAID, are thinking about ways to help the world's poorest countries. And one problem they keep running into is the lack of financing. A lot of those institutions and and, and many local bankers in those countries Develop these financial institutions that aim to give money and loans to some of the world's poorest people.
0: And over the years, this idea has become pretty well received. In 2006, Mohammed Yunus won a Nobel Peace Prize for his work around microfinance. We encourage and support
1: every conceivable effective intervention to help poor fight out of poverty. We always advocate microcredit in addition to all other interventions, arguing that microcredit makes all other interventions work better
4: and in many 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 cases it worked really well people who wouldn't have been able to start their own business who wouldn't have been able to you know plant crops were able to borrow money to do that it also brought a lot of women into the economy who previously didn't have access to what they would need to have to start business in the first place. So, you know, this program, these kinds of programs did a lot of good around the world.
0: But how did it work out in Guatemala?
4: Guatemala was a place where the U.S. was for a lot of years really proud of what microfinance was doing. But, you know, when you think about what the sort of fundamental goal is of microfinance, right, it's trying to give someone the ability to make an investment that will yield returns over time. In rural Guatemala, by migrating to the U.S., you can multiply your purchasing power by almost seven times. And so what has happened over the last, really the last 10 years, is that people are taking out loans, sometimes from financial institutions funded by USAID, sometimes from each other. And they're using those loans, you know, not to start a small business, not to purchase seeds to grow on their farm, but to pay a smuggler to get to the U.S., But the problem is when it fails, when you fail, when you get deported or when you don't make it to the border at all, you return to Guatemala with impossible debts and they end up really with no choice but to try to migrate once again. And if they fail the second time, they return with a debt that's twice as big. If they fail the third time, it's three times as big. And it is an enormous problem in rural Guatemala.
0: So you talked to some people who have gone through this, who've tried to use some of these loans to get to the U.S. and have seen what the consequences can be. Can you walk me through some of those stories?
4: So I talked to this one guy. uh, His name is Jose Seto. He's 27 years old. He would graduated with a degree in tourism from a local university and realized pretty quickly that he wasn't going to be able to make very much money with that degree. And so he did the same thing that a lot of people do in in rural Guatemala. He found a smuggler through a friend on Facebook. He was quoted a price for the journey, $6,500 or 50,000 quetzales. And the the next thing he had to do was figure out where to get that money from. And so he went to a bank called Rural, which is one of the biggest banks in Guatemala. And Jose told the loan officer the same thing that a lot of people tell loan officers in this situation. He lied. He said he needed the money to improve his family farm. Uh, He he showed his family's deed as collateral. And very quickly thereafter, he had the money he needed in the form of a loan from the bank to pay the smuggler.
5: Mm
4: Jose made the journey to the border and he crossed the border. And not long after that, he was detained by the border patrol and he was deported. And he returned to Guatemala with this huge debt, you know, with, with the money that he thought he was going to be able to repay with an American job. Um, suddenly he had to find a way to repay it in Guatemala. And when I met him in Nabok, he was in this sort of this really difficult situation, right? Where he he didn't really want to migrate again, but he knew that to repay this debt. The only way to find a job where he could pay that money back easily was going to be to migrate again and to find a, find a job in the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant.
0: So his plan basically was to get another loan and to try it again?
4: Yeah, it's doubling down. I mean, and it is a thing that you see everywhere in Guatemala. People who have large deaths from migration and are deported before they can pay those debts, feel like they have no choice but to try again. And in many cases, they succeed the second time, and it works out. And in many other cases, they fail the second time and return with a much deeper debt than they had before. And it's hard to even explain how difficult it would be to pay back $15,000 in rural Guatemala. I mean, there's just literally no way you could ever do it. So what happens, of course, is that In in Jose's case, if he isn't able to succeed in migrating the second time, he's going to lose his family home. And, you know, that's not only all he has, it's all his parents have, it's all his siblings have. And so the idea of losing it is sort of unimaginable. It just kind of creates this crisis, not just for him, but for his whole extended family.
0: So what happens to these families that find themselves kind of drowning in this debt, and they keep trying to get to the U.S., and it's just not possible?
4: So after a while, you know, when they basically have no other place to borrow money, the next thing that happens is they lose their homes. And often in rural Guatemala, a home is not just a home, it's also it's also a farm, it's also the place where your food comes from. So the idea of losing that piece of land is a, is a it's a really big problem for these families. So some of them end up moving to Guatemala City, taking jobs in factories if they can find them. Some of them end up sort of selling things on the side of the road. I talked to one one family that was on the verge of this problem was just about to lose their home this was a family whose son had migrated to the US earlier this year in large part because he was pushed by the family to migrate because the family needed needed money and they thought you know if our son gets a job in the US he can send some money back to us and that was sort of the plan they borrowed several thousand dollars from someone who lived close to them Sent their son with a smuggler, and he ended up dying in border patrol custody.
5: Pero
0: Really,
4: right after the body came back, the boy was buried. The family got a call. From the person who had loaned them the money saying, basically, I'm sorry about your son, but you're still on the hook for this money. And when I visited them about a month ago or a couple of months ago, they basically had come to terms with the fact that they were going to lose their home. And I asked the father of this boy what the family's plan was. And he basically said, you know, I I drove around and I, I found a plot of land where I think we can kind of put up a tent and, you know, maybe we'll just stay there for a while. Um, and this is a big family with lots of kids. Um, so the idea that they're gonna like basically sleep outside is sort of hard for the the parents to to imagine. but you know that's 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 what happens in this case, right? where there's there's this huge accruing debt and no ability to pay it back. and so it leads to just absolute desperation.
0: So then, what is the solution here? Because it seems like the system itself isn't doing what it was intended to do.
4: Basically, in these small towns in rural Guatemala, a lot of the loan officers sort of shrug when people tell them that the money going to, you know, the money's going to go to a farm or it's going to go to a family business. They know it's going to go to fund migration and they still give the loans. And that is a fundamental problem because the more people who get deported with these debts, the more people who end up being displaced, who end up being homeless. But the problem is that even if the formal financial institutions get better at this. You know, even if they monitor where the money goes and they manage to stop giving loans to migrants, there's this shadow financial network alongside the formal one. And that's money that comes from relatives and friends that's almost impossible to regulate. And it's hard to know sort of when that gets better, how to stop it.
0: Kevin Seif is the Post's Mexico bureau chief. U.S. officials say that they stopped supporting direct lending microfinance programs in Guatemala more than 10 years ago. They say that the U.S. helped build significant financial institutions that have grown the country's economy. But those institutions are responsible for vetting their own clients. Migration from Guatemala over the last month has decreased, in part because word has gotten back to Guatemalans that it's become much more difficult to cross the border into the U.S. Kevin says that that may start to taper this whole system as people realize that it's not as profitable as it once was to take this risk.
5: now one more thing from the lilies lena felton it's december and a new star wars movie is coming out in the new trilogy and a lot of male fans have for a while now criticized the fact that there's a female lead ray in this new trilogy
0: people keep telling me they know me
5: no one does You know, a year ago, Kelly Marie Tran, who is an actress and a woman of color um, who plays Rose Tico in the movies, was actually chased off of social media because male fans were being so terrible online. And I think that in general, the media really seizes on the fact that science fiction fans are male. But that actually erases this really rich history of women both creating and consuming science fiction. The funny thing is, is that women have actually been writing stories using science fiction even before the genre really existed and actually exploring gender and sexuality in these stories. So you go back to the 10th century in Japan and there's this folktale about a princess coming down from the moon and rejecting the emperor's hand in marriage because she wants to take care of her own people. Then you go to the 1600s, and a British noblewoman, Margaret Cavendish, writes The Blazing World, which is a novel that imagines a utopian future, and a young woman is the lead character. In 1818, Mary Shelley publishes Frankenstein, which today is still considered basically the original work of science fiction. So women have been writing science fiction for centuries, and no one's really talking about that fact. You know, we saw this in books, but also in film. I mean... Fritz Lang's 1927 film Metropolis, which explores this utopian future, actually featured women as the stars of it. Um, They were both the heroes and the villains in that film, which is considered basically one of the first science fiction films. And, you know, at the same time this movie was coming out, women were still fighting for basic equal rights. They were still fighting for the right to vote in many countries. So that brings us to sort of the 60s and the 70s and the women's liberation movement. A lot of experts cite Space. Star Trek final as being the force to bring feminism into homes and to sort of share it with the masses. So I spoke with Rochelle Roos, who um, who's a fifty one year old mother living in Louisiana, and she says that some of her earliest childhood memories are actually watching Star Trek with her father in the nineteen seventies.
1: I remember sitting with him in his chair, and we would watch it together, and it, he always knew that I was interested in science and science fiction, and I just became a fan of it, watching it in reruns with him. She loved the show
5: because it basically represented this more moral world. Mr. Spock, I haven't done anything like this in years. If it isn't done just right, I could blow the entire communication system. It's very delicate work, sir. I can think of no one better equipped to handle it, Miss Uhura. Please proceed. You know people of different species were working together for a better future. And she especially loved the fact that she could see women as commanders.
1: It was unlike anything else. You would actually see women were doing actual things that men were doing. They were in command. It it wasn't someone like they were secretaries or getting someone coffee. In one particular episode, the Romulan commander, she's a woman, And I remember watching that and seeing, oh, their commander is a woman. This is extraordinary. It's something you never saw before. I think that science
5: fiction represents such a good medium to explore gender and sexuality and equality because we're basically a few steps removed from reality. Sci-fi suspends disbelief for a second, so you can step back and imagine worlds in which traditional bounds of gender just simply don't exist. So for women, this has actually allowed them to imagine these things when they're fighting for basic rights, and they're still imagining them today because there's still work to be
1: done. When you see something like that, it it's like, well, well I can do that too, so I shouldn't be afraid because I'm just as good as anyone else.
5: So I think that when You know, movies, big blockbuster sci fi films come out, it's important to interrogate the ways in which they deal with gender because they have the ability to sort of say, this is what we hope the world looks like.
0: Lena Felton writes for The Lily at the Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. And check out our website for our episode archive. You can go back and catch up on recent stories, like Monday's special episode about new, groundbreaking documents and audio recordings obtained by The Post on the state of the war in Afghanistan. Check it out at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.